Saturday, even at 7 o'clock in the morning my time. But uh, I want to welcome everybody to the room and hope that everybody's uh, having a wonderful Sunday. Uh, I'd also like to thank Marianne and the group for asking me to share my experience, my strength, and my hope with you all. And, uh, you know, hope that, uh, you know, that we can uh, all remain friends even after I share. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, my, my, my drinking career is, you know, just like anybody else's. You know, my experience was that I drank too much. My strength is that, you know, I have a higher power in my life. And my hope is that I never lose conscious contact with him on a moment let alone on a daily basis. Um, you know, I'll start off by, <clears throat> excuse me, start off by telling, you know, a little of my, my childhood that, uh, that I used, uh, as part of the excuse to, uh, you know, go to part of my drinking career and my military career, which, you know, I used as the major excuse. But, uh, I, uh, you know, like anybody else, I had a, a childhood and, uh, I, uh, had three stepfathers before I got a, a real, real stepfather, uh, who to this day I still call my dad, uh, even though he wasn't my biological father. He did more for me than any other of the previous four men in my mother's, in my life. I have three sisters. I am the firstborn and only son. Uh, when I was about five years old, I was sexually molested by my aunt, which was my wife, or not my wife, my mother's sister. Um, and I had absolutely no support or belief in any of that, uh, you know, as it was going on. I knew something wasn't right, but at that age, you know, there, there really wasn't, especially, in, you know, in the 50s, there really wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of talk about that. That was one of those things that was kept as, you know, as a family secret, so to speak. Uh, it's not like today, if you even look at a kid wrong, you know, somebody will report you and God bless them for it. But uh, for a long time, I had no support on that. You know, my parents, or my mom, didn't believe me, you know, my grandparents, oh yeah, right, you know, it's just a thing, it's just a phase, you know, he's going through, you know, it's an attention getter, what have you. And then, uh, you know, like I said, I had no support in that, but uh, eventually we, you know, when I had my, my, my third stepdad, my mom married him, uh, we moved away from Washington to California. And then life, you know, began on the rosy trail to other problems that I had. Uh, I was a very rebellious child. I think a lot of that stemmed from my upbringing uh, and lack of, uh, you know, in my opinion, care and love, uh, and my, my shortcomings. You know, I, I felt less than. I felt, you know, that that you know, life, life, even at, at a young age, you know, sucked. You know, there, there had to be more to life than you know what I was going through. And uh, in school, you know, I wasn't that much of a, a great student. I excelled in shop. You know, like your metal shops, your wood shops, uh, those types of things, math, and a little bit in science. Uh, every other course was like, you know, stuff it. Uh, I didn't enjoy the other courses, but for some reason I have a mathematical mind. Uh, very analytical and mathematical. So, you know, my, my, my high school career, so to speak, you know, jump all the way up to high school and not, you know, bore you with all the details of all my childhood, but, you know, just to say that, uh, the first time I drank, uh, I still remember the first time I got drunk, not necessarily the first time I drank, but the first time I got drunk was at a Christmas party up in Washington. And uh, they were drinking 7 and 7. And, you know, I would always remember that, 7 and 7, you know, like 77, Sunset Strip. And, uh, of course, I'm giving, giving my age away now. Uh, but, you know, they had me as the, the bartender, so to speak. You know, we were at my, my aunt's house, the one that was molesting me many years before. And, uh, you know, it's like, hey, Mike, get us another drink. And I didn't know, you know, how to mix a shot to, you know, a glass of, you know, this. It's just like you put a little of this, you put a little of that, and you pass it on. And after a second, third one, nobody was complaining. But one of the things that I would do, you know, is when they call me and say, hey, fill my drink, you know, there's always a little bit left in their glass. I would chug that one down. And then mix him a brand new one. Well, before I knew it, I was feeling different. Uh, you know, I was walking on a cloud. It's like, wow, this is an awesome feeling, you know. And I didn't realize it, but, but I was getting inebriated. And along with inebriation comes the free feeling. The liquid courage kicked in, and, you know, I was able to speak my mind and what have you. And at this time, I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And, uh, 
I remember after mixing a drink, somebody said something snotty to me, and I just turned around, and back in those days, we didn't use the F word. It was the, the S word, screw you. Uh, and I was pretty vulgar back in those days, and I went, screw you. Well, I got my butt kicked, uh, to say the least. And I was picked up by the scuff of my neck and the back of my britches, and I was hauled out to the truck and thrown in the front seat and told, don't you even think of getting out of this truck. Well, I thought about it. But I also knew, you know, what the consequences would be. So instead, you know, I just lay on the horn to get their attention, and that seemed to work pretty quick. Uh, neighbors don't like uh, listening to horns at two and three o'clock in the morning. So, needless to say, I got my butt kicked again, uh, and this time for some reason, and I still remember this to, to this day. My mother went to grab me, and I went to turn my head, and she got me with two fingers inside the lip and grabbed me like a dog and just drug me through the front yard, stood me in front of everybody, started beating on me and saying, you will not act like this in my presence, blah, 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 blah. And I, I mean, to this day, I swear, she, she stretched my lip up over my head and over my ears, and all of a sudden I blanked out and I didn't hear anything going on. It's like, okay, oh, wow, if alcohol can do this, you know, just block out, you know, the entire situation. But I do remember the next morning, that hangover, my very first hangover, laying over the tub with my head in the tub, watching the water filling up and the, the vapors coming up. It's like, oh, that's soothing. And I remember my grandparents had, because we were at my grandparents' house at that time, my grandparents had a, a short somewhere in their water system. And every now and then, you'd get a little tingle through the faucets, you know, if you were grounded just right. And I remember laying my head on the faucet thinking, oh, this is going to be great to get in that tub. Well, it lit me up like a fireworks, and uh, hangover kicked in full-fledged. It's like, wow. And then, you know, as my mother woke up, you know, the fireworks started some more. And I thought, you know what, I don't need this kind of crap, you know. And... I use that as, many, as well as many other excuses to continue my drinking career. And then, uh, you know, we went back to California and, you know, life resumed. And I remember, you know, the rules in the house were that anything that you are man enough to do, you do in front of me, not behind my back, and you do it in this house. So there was that kind of a light enforced rule that, you know, if you wanted to drink, you could have a small snoot here and there. If you wanted to smoke a cigarette, you smoked it in the house. You know, that kind of thing. So as long as you did it in front of me, it was okay. Uh, I remember at 14 years of age, my mother used to buy my cigarettes. Uh, back in those days, you could actually forge a note uh, to the store and, uh, you know, pick them up at the store at 35 cents a pack. You know, not $75 a pack as they are today. But, um, you know, I, I kind of used that. You know, it's like, you know, now I'm a man, you like, God, I can smoke and drink, and, you know, I can be like a like an adult. Well, little did I know, you know, that that would not be a comfortable thing for me to be doing. Uh, I used the, 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 the rationale that, you know, it was okay to do those things. You know, if it's okay to do it in the house, you know, it's okay to do it behind the house. If it's okay to do it behind the house, it's okay to do it in somebody else's house. And I used that as a stepping stone in my drinking career. And then, uh, you know, life got a little bit worse. Uh, I had uh, a fairly decent job. Uh, I was eventually promoted, this is while I was in high school, I was eventually promoted to night manager at a jack-in-the-box, a jack-in-the-box of all things, you know. But back in those days, that was, you know, it was a fairly decent job. And uh, they were just going to the 24-hour system, and they needed some night managers. So my boss and the owner of the store said, hey, how would you like to do that? And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds good. You know, it's like a 60 cent or 75 cents per hour raise, which, you know, back in those days was you know, a tremendous amount of money. And uh, I still had like 10 or 12 weeks of high school left before graduation uh, when my job got uh, turned over to the manager's position. And... I thought, you know, man, I'm making money, you know, I don't need school, blah, blah, blah. So I dropped out 10 weeks before my high school graduation. Uh, and to this day, I regret that and not following on with my, uh, my, my education. Uh, I have since, you know, gotten a GED, which I, I did so good on the GED, I took it to my high school, and they actually gave me a high school diploma. And then it took a year of college, but college just wasn't, you know, 
in my structure for those days. I had other things that I wanted to do, i.e. drugs and alcohol. Um, so my dad said, you know, look, if you're so good a man that you don't need to finish school and you know, do this, then you have one of two choices. You're already in trouble you know, a couple of times with the law, and uh, the rules in this house are you follow my rules or you follow the old brick road. He says, so you have a choice. You can either go back to school finish your education, or I'm going to enlist your behind in the United States Army. Now, this is well before my 18th birthday, and I thought, okay, what an adventure. I can be all that I can be, you know, and I can go and travel, and, you know, my philosophy of what the Army was was a whole lot different than what their philosophy of what the Army was. And, um, I was signed in at uh, about 17 and a half years of age, and uh, I remember the, the last summer, you know, the summer before I went in, that we, were, we used to go to Mexico all the time uh, and live down south of Ensenada, if anybody knows the area. And uh, we'd take our trailer down there and we'd stay all summer long. You know, a week after school was out for the summer vacation until the week before school started. We'd stay down there the entire time. And, uh, you know, I, I really was throwing my oats uh, that last year. Uh, I remember somebody bought me uh, you know, a half gallon of Bacardi, and I tried to down that whole thing. Uh, I'm out skinny dipping, and skinny dipping eventually led into nude skiing. I don't recommend that, uh, especially when you wipe out. Uh, things bounce around in the water that shouldn't, and uh, it's a little painful to say the least. But I remember that whole experience because I thought, you know, this is the throwing of my oats. You know, this is my last debauch, if you will, as a boy before I became a man in the Army. And, um, you know, I get back, you know, back to the campsite or the trailer and, you know, I got reamed out again. And one of the last things that my mother said before I had left to, to, to go uh, to the induction center was, you know, I hope, you know, one, because I was, I was right before the draft. I chose to go in, but it was still during the draft and I had a very low uh, number. But uh, one of the last things my mother said to me is, you know, I hope they send you behind to Vietnam, and I hope you stand up in front of the first bullet that's fired your way and catch it right between the eyes. You disgust me, you piece of this, you son of that, you mother this. I mean, she just went off on me. You know, to this day, I've resented that. Uh, I've worked through it, and I've gotten through it. But I truly think, you know, as I reflect back on it, that was her defense mechanism. You know, she was hurt, you know, that I was going to leave her and, you know, the family and, you know, go out about my own and everything else. And her only way to to allow that separation, if you will, was to basically ring me out and give me all her hate and her disgust and everything else. So she didn't know how much I loved her. Uh, you know, since then I've known I've known that she does love me and everything else. But you know, I used that too. You know, that was another one of those things that I used as part of my drinking excuses. Well, I did go to Vietnam not only once but I went twice. Uh, right before my uh, final date, I had 90 days left in the army, and uh, I reenlisted for what they call another PDA, present duty assignment, and uh, because I was in Vietnam, I went ahead and chose to do another year there. And it's, I think when I reflect back on that too, it's like, really I had no direction for my life. Uh, I was too scared to kill myself and I was too afraid to die, but I was hoping, you know, against all hope, uh, because obviously God had a different uh, outcome for my life. You know, that maybe I would end my life there. You know, then I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, what I'm going to be, who I'm going to be, who I'm going to misuse, you know, this and those and that. And, uh, you know, I, I did six years active. I'm, you know, I'm not saying this to brag, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a war vet. I'm decorated, big deal. You know, that and $5 will buy me a cup of coffee in some of the better places in town. But one of the things that, uh, you know, I was proud of that at the time, and I still am, not to say that I'm not, but one of the things that happened when I came home on leave before I went back on my second tour was I was going through San Francisco, up near where I went through basic training, and uh, people walked up to me, 
disgusted, called me all kinds of names. I literally had people throwing dog feces at me, calling me warmonger, baby killer, this, that, and everything else. And I was like, whoa, you know, where's that all coming from, you know? I thought it was a proud and prestigious position to say that I'm in the military. Not to say that I'm in combat necessarily, but that I'm in the military. And I've come to come to terms with a lot of the things that happened during that. But what I do now and since then is that when people start talking bad like that, I just look at them and say, you know what I did when I was in the military? I fought for the Constitution of the United States of America to give you the right to treat me the way that you are right now. You know, I didn't go there to kill people. I didn't go there to rape, maim, and, you know, pillage and all those things, nor did I while I was there. I mean, yes, I did, unfortunately, take lives, but that was part of my, my duty. And uh, when I tell people that, it kind of takes the wind out of, out of their sails, so to speak, because they don't know what to say to, you know, to a response like that. And then, you know, like I said, I use that, you know, as my long-term drinking career. Then my last duty station was Fort Puke, Louisiana, or as they called it, Fort Polk, Louisiana. But uh, I got stationed there in the in the hottest areas that I've ever been. Uh, I thought, you know, that the monsoons and, you know, the humidity in, in the jungle was bad. Criminy, you ought to try spending a couple of years on the Gulf Coast. Well, at my last duty station, then I became a trainer for trainees in basic and uh, advanced training too, because I was a combat train to train them for the skills that you know that we had acquired. And again, you know, Louisiana boy, them Southern boys know how to drink. Uh, they drank this stuff called moonshine. Uh, it'll make your moonshine, that's for sure. But I never liked it. Uh, it was just a little too stout for me, so I would mix it with Kool-Aid or something sweet to give it a, <laughs> at least flavor uh, instead of just pure burn. And all my friends would laugh at me. I said, well, you know, I don't need this. I'll just switch back to my tequila and, you know, my beer and what have you and my little green leafy stuff. And uh, I stayed at Fort Polk. Uh, I met a girl, married her, had two children. And, you know, stayed, you know, when I got out of the military. And I got, at first, I worked offshore oil. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I worked out there where that, you know, BP is having their problems with that oil rig. I worked 180 miles out in the Gulf of Mexico in the same general area where that rig is finally capped. And I thought, wow, this is the lifestyle. You know, this is this is good. You know, the money was real decent, blah, 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 blah. You weren't allowed to drink on the rig, but, boy, when you had those two weeks off, because you worked two weeks on, two weeks off, you know, you can get some pretty serious drinking in in two weeks, you know, a couple of days hang over and go right back to work. But one of the things I realized while I was on my, on my, my I don't know, fifth, sixth, or seventh term was that when I had left one week, my son was still crawling around. When I came back the following two weeks, he's out in the front yard running and playing. And I was like, wow, I'm spending half of his life out in the middle of the ocean and missing out on you know all the formable years of his life, so I decided to quit and got a better job working inland and, and what have you. But again, you know, I lived up to the lifestyle that I thought construction workers and you know those types of guys did. I did a lot of smoking, a lot of drinking, a lot of cigarettes, as well as the green leafy stuff. And uh, you know, then <clears throat> eventually I had a daughter, and. Uh, you know, now I'm, you know, the family man. I've got, you know, some great in-laws and, uh, you know, a bad mic. And I just, I couldn't live that lifestyle. You know, my wife wanted me to be one thing. I wanted her to be another thing. She wanted me to be, you know, country bred and I wanted to be city born. And we just clashed for a long time. And one thing led to another. And finally, after 11 years of marriage, we decided to call it quits. And, I used that as another excuse to go on a drinking career. And then eventually, not to bore all the details, but eventually I married again. And this time I married a girl quite younger than I was. And we had a baby. And five months after my daughter, second daughter was born, my wife decided she didn't want to be married anymore, kidnapped the baby and disappeared. 
Never heard a word from her. <clears throat> Tracked her down a couple of times. I filed reports with the FBI and Child Protective Services, and eventually, you know, the results came back that she was with her biological mother and, in their opinion, in no danger or in any any concern of uh, harm. So they, they felt that it was, you know, a situation more for the courts than it was for law enforcement. And every time I was able to track her down, she'd either change her address, her name, or whatever, and pretty much fell off the face of the earth. Well, that was it. That was, you know, I thought I was in love. We never had a fight. You know, we had a perfect baby. She never cried the first five months of her life. She was, you know, breastfed. Yeah, you know, so there wasn't much participation in for myself as far as the feeding, but I would get up every time and, you know, be with my wife while she was doing that. But I always had a beer in my hand and a cigarette in my mouth, you know, regardless. And uh, when they left, I just, I went way off the deep end. I mean, I went farther than I care to remember. Um, that was my last drinking binge, and I went on a very serious drinking binge. I lost my condominium. Uh, I lost my house. I mean, they, they literally repossessed my, my house and my car two days before I was moving out due to the marshal's eviction. And now I've got no vehicle, and I'm moving about 70 miles away. I've got no way of moving. Blah, 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 blah. So I eventually enlisted some friends, and we did what we had to do. That didn't work out. Then I moved in with my sister. And I was living on her couch, justifying my existence. She would buy my food, and her and I were dealing uh, green leafy stuff out of the house. And, uh, you know, all the booze and everything else was being paid for by by the income from those uh, enterprises. And... Uh, like I said, I justified my existence by, you know, saying, okay, well, I'm remodeling her house, and I got all this construction background and skills and, you know, what have you. So I helped remodel her house, and I built, you know, this and that, and I, you know, did this and that. And, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not really taking advantage of her because she's still got to pay a mortgage whether I'm here or not here. And, you know, all those, all those self-justification things that a lot of us go through. Well, that lasted about, I guess, six or seven months. And one day, her the rent-paying roommate said something to me that hit a nerve, uh, because it was true, I guess, uh, more than anything else. But you know, she said I was, you know, lazy and good for nothing, and you know, and I just took advantage of people. Blah 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 blah. Well, a couple of days later, she reiterated that with some other stuff, and a couple of days after that, she reiterated again with some other stuff, and. The third time she did that was about as far as I wanted to listen to her BS. So I walked into her room and said, look, you know, a few choice words. Uh, you know, you don't know me. You know, you got no right to talk to me like this. I don't know who you think you are, but, you know, I'm somebody. You know, I'm not just a piece of something you stepped in and can't wipe off of your shoe. You know, I'm a warden decorated vet, and, you know, I've got a very big life, and I've done this, and I've done that, and... She said a few things back to me, and I, I snapped. I mean, I literally snapped. And I said, you know what, babe, you got about 30 seconds to live. I walked to the closet, grabbed my rifle, cocked around into it, and said, you know what, you think I'm BSing? Sit here for another 30 seconds, and you'll find out. I've never seen that fat ass, pardon my language, uh, move so fast. Uh, she was out of there lickety split and gone. And my sister's like, what's going on? I said, you need to get out of here too. And at that point I had decided to end my life. Well, before I was able to pull the trigger on myself as I'm downing the last couple of beers, all of a sudden I noticed little red, little red dots down, dancing around the house and I look out the window, we were on the second story and the one wall was covered in mirrors. So I could actually see to the front door and down the stairwell, or partially down the stairwell, without ever getting close to the mirrors. Uh, and a couple of times it would hit that mirror and bounce around the room, and I just kind of thought that was funny. These guys are sighting in on something that's not really there. And then there's a knock on the door, and you know, blah, 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 blah. They show up, and I open the door and step back, and I've got the rifle, and you know, I'm being very belligerent and vulgar and what have you. And when you enter,
Uh, C-shaped, if you will. It's three-sided. There's only one opening going in and that same opening coming back out. So I kind of slid the dining room table and some chairs across there so they couldn't just jump right at me. And I stayed in the kitchen pretty much for three hours as I'm holding them off with a rifle. So the minute one of you guys tick me off too much, you better have them guns ready to start pulling the trigger because the firefight's going to stop. And this was right after the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. My sobriety date is June 6, 1992. The riots were in April of 92. And uh, to say the least, these cops were primed for excitement. Uh, but there was one individual who took it upon himself to be the negotiator and he talked for a long time uh, they actually had a negotiator call the, the house phone on the wireless and I just picked it up and said here it's probably your negotiator because I didn't recognize the caller ID and I threw it to the cop and told him you talk to him I'm not dealing with him but he did manage to calm me down just in his demeanor and his attitude and every now and then I'd walk back, to, back up to the kitchen and grab another beer and they'd all get all tense and everything and later, when I did finally give up, he asked me about that. He said, you know, did you ever notice that, you know, every time you went in the kitchen, we all kind of tensed up? And I go, yeah, well, I, I saw it, but I didn't pay no attention. He goes, and every time you walk by the, the refrigerator, next to the refrigerator, were two butcher blocks full of knives. He said, did you ever consider picking up one of them knives and throwing at any of us? And I, I had to laugh because obviously we weren't on the same train of thought, you know. They were worried about their safety and any possibility of any weapon being thrown or you know, shot in a direction. And I left him and said, I got a high-powered rifle that will instantly kill you. Why would I take a chance of throwing a knife and missing? You know, it's like, hello. But um, one thing led to another, you know, before I gave up. And I finally, you know, said in my head, I said, you know, God, I don't know how I've gotten myself into this situation. I have backed myself into a corner. And I don't even know how I got here, let alone how I'm going to get out. But only with and through your help can I get out of this. And if you help me out of this, God, you know, I promise you I will never drink again. I give you my word. Please help me. And I kept saying that over and over in my head. And one thing led to another and like I said I finally made some conditions or gave some conditions to the to the officers and says you know this is this is how I'm going to give up and this is what you will do <laughs> yeah right well I did what I said I was going to do and uh, obviously they did not but they did take me instead of j to jail they took me directly to a hospital uh, when the toxicology report came back they says oh man you're loaded on coke Marijuana and your blood alcohol is about three times the legal limit. I said, well, I'm not driving. Who cares? You know, here I am being defensive about my condition. You know, not even thinking or considering what I had just done, you know, as far as taking the rifle and doing all the things I had done. And I'm laughing at the officer and everything. And then, you know, he puts me in a car to take me to another hospital, which was the psych ward. And on the way, there's a message on his little computer digital thing, whatever they call those things in their police cars, and it was a message from the station from my sister asking them what she wanted or what they wanted her to do and me with the marijuana that was left in the house. Well, there was about a pound and a half of marijuana, and uh, she was afraid that because they had found a, a small baggie of marijuana in my pocket when they frisked me and took all my knives and all the stuff out of my pockets and threw everything on the table. She thought that was their probable cause to come back later with a search warrant and search the house. And I was like, yeah, right. So, you know, it's like, how, how stupid can you be? You know, call the cops and ask them what you want them to do with the marijuana. But, uh, you know, he, he turned around and relayed the message to me. I said, tell her to flush it down the toilet. I don't care what she does with it. Well, I thought that was just kind of ironic that, you know, her and I both were dealers, but yet she was worried about, you know, possibly spending some time in, in the jail with me. Because one thing that I had failed to mention, she was pregnant. Um, because of all that activity with the police and everything, she went into labor. Uh, and four days later, she, she delivered uh, my nephew. 
who was born on June 10th, 18 years ago. And one of the ways that I remember his birthday is June 10th is AA's birthday. 18 is the amount of time I have in sobriety. So as long as I don't drink, I will always know how old he is, and because his birthday is celebrated with AA's birthday, I will always know when it is. And it's kind of a cool thing, you know. Again, you know, it's one of these God shot things, you know. So it's easy for me to remember all of that. Well, one thing led to another as far as my uh, the confinement. Uh, they had me in a psych ward on a 72-hour hold, what I called a 5150. I was a threat or a danger to myself and or others. And uh, on the third day, the nurse came up to me and says, okay, the doctor's going to make an evaluation. You know, your 72 hours is almost up, blah, 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 blah. Are you still suicidal? No, yeah, maybe so. Well, if you tell the doctor you're not suicidal, we'll release you. She says, are you a vet? Well, I perked up. Yeah, I'm a vet. I'm twice honorably discharged and blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, why don't you go check in for services at the Veterans Administration Hospital, which was not far from where I lived. And I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. What do they do there? She said, basically the same thing here. They're going to help you. Well, I did that. I actually had them discharge me. Uh, My sister came and picked me up. pregnant as ever and uh, turned me over to her neighbor because she wasn't feeling too good and uh, literally went into labor that night and uh, they took me to the VA hospital and I I checked into their their program or not their program I should say uh, their psych ward Uh, first thing they did because I there was an an incident that happened and I I freaked I, I just had some situations in my head and one thing led to another next thing I know I'm in a, in a ball screaming and crying like a little titty baby and freaking out and they put me in four point restraints gave me some medication to calm my demeanor down and left me there for what seemed like an eternity uh, to this day I really don't know how long because I kind of blacked a lot of that out of my mind but it kept me in the psych ward for about two and a half months uh, to work through issues and eventually they got me into some psych therapy and then it got me into a, a less secured psych program, and then eventually one day they decided to discharge me. And when the doctor, and I, would, I just was starting to make connections. I was going to these AA meetings within the facility. Uh, I was literally escorted from the psych ward to the meeting. The guy would stay there the whole time, almost like a cop waiting you know, for something to happen, and then would escort me back and then lock me in my room at night. And... Uh, I started making some connections. You know, it's like, wow, you know, these people are standing up there telling their life stories. I'm going through this emotional roller coaster. I'd listen to, you know, some of these funny things that, you know, people in the room are laughing at, and I'm sitting there crying because I could relate to what this guy was talking about or this gal was talking about. And it was like, wow, you know, talk about, you know, hearing your life, you know, short of holding the cops off with a rifle and everything else, it was like, you know, it was, it was my life in total. Well, then, like I said, came the day for the discharge. It was on a Friday. Or actually, excuse me, it was on a Thursday. And, um, you know, the doctor called me in. He says, okay, we're discharging you today. And we just out of the clear blue sky. And I was like, whoa, you know, I'm homeless. I got nowhere to go. Obviously, my sister doesn't want me back. Uh, And, uh, you know, what am I going to do? And my mind started going off at about 100 miles an hour. And I didn't know what to do. And. I said, you can't do this to me. I'm still sick and da-da-da-da-da. He says, you're not sick. He says, you've been diagnosed with polysubstance abuse. I had absolutely no idea what that meant. Poly, later I found out. Poly meaning more than one. Substances, I knew what that was. And abuse, by God, I knew what that was. So basically what he was telling me was I was just a common drunk and drug abuser. And... Uh, I said, you can't discharge me and this and that. And he said, well, one of the reasons I want to discharge you today is starting tomorrow, they've got this three-day event called stand down, which was a military term. When you came back from the field, you would stand down. It was kind of like a debriefing type thing. You had some time to rest, relax. If, if you were fortunate, you know, if not, 24 hours later, you're back in the field. Uh, but it was uh, a three-day event that they had put on for jobless and homeless vets 
and trying to get them off the streets. They had military-style tents that would house 20 people. Uh, they had staff out there. They had all kinds of resources, both private and uh, federal resources. And um, they had entertainment. They fed us. They clothed us. They entertained us, all this kind of stuff. They had a court out there. I mean, all these things to try to resolve some of the issues that some of us vets had that kept us outside of society's parameters. And tried to get us back into the mainstream. So, uh, there was job corps out there. I mean, there was all kinds of, you know, all kinds of entities that was wanting and willing to help us with absolutely no expectations in return, except hopefully to keep us sober and, you know, off the streets. And I made a real good connection there. And I remember the, the second or th I think it was the second night we were there, they had a candlelight meeting about 10.30 at night. And they literally took candles, stuck them in the ground, big circle, and we all sat around, all these guys that were supposed to be alcoholics, with some of the people that were, you know, senior in the program. And by senior, I mean two and three years sober. Uh, and for us, that was a lot of, lot of time. And they went around this circle and, you know, were sharing. Well, it came my turn, and I didn't know what to say. This was my third meeting that I had attended out there, and I was like, I don't want to share, you know. These people don't know me and blah, blah. But he came to me, and I said, yeah, my name is Mike, and I guess I'm an alcoholic and a drug abuser. And I, I look at this as my, my third meeting, you know, kind of like a baseball game, three strikes and you're out. So either I share and work on through this, or I take the third strike and go sit on the bench and, you know, continue my crappy life the way that it is and was. But I chose not to, you know. And I said, you know, and I really don't know what to do. I'm scared. Uh, you know, this is the first time I've actually been with vets, you know, of my own kind uh, since I've been out of the Army. And, uh, you know, I, I completely abandoned the government because they abandoned me, so to speak. And I didn't want anything to do with them. And, you know, I shared a few things about, you know, what was going on in my life and what had happened and, after the meeting, this guy come up to me and he introduced himself and he says, "Hey, he says, were you serious about what you were saying in that meeting?" I go, "What about being a baseball game?" He goes, "No, about wanting to change your life." I says, "I was absolutely serious." I said, "But I don't know what I'm doing." I said, "Maybe it was just talk, you know. Maybe it's just fear, anxiety, and all that, you know." I said, "Because I really don't know how to change my life." I said, "You know, I've done nothing but screw my life up since the day I was born." And he goes, "Well, there's a way out." And that way, for me, is called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says, and that way can work for you, too. And I was like, yeah, right. You know, nothing has ever worked for me. How could Alcoholics Anonymous do anything for me? So we sat down and talked. The next day, one of the social workers came up to me, and he says, hey, you know, I've been getting a lot of feedback from some of the staff and, you know, some of the people here at the, the stand down. And, you know, we, we tried to reach out to a lot of people. It says, and, you know, there's only a couple that actually accept and there's only a couple that actually succeed. He said, but you have all the markings of somebody that really wants some help. He says, and we're willing to help you. We will place you in a home if you promise to do a few things and check yourself into this program called K2, which was a 21-day live-in program detoxification and uh, substance abusers and, uh, you know, try to help you get your life back together. I said, okay. He said, okay, one of the things you're going to have to do is, you know, we'll, we'll put you up for 90 days at this, this halfway house. One of the things you need to do every day at 1 o'clock, you need to be to the outpatient alcohol treatment center, attend about a, an hour and a half meeting of, uh, you know, just group uh, sharing and, and what have you, and you have to register every day to be on a waiting list to get into this, this uh, detox program. I said, okay, not a problem. So they did, I did, and they told me you know, when I, the first day that I went to the, uh, to the meeting that, you know, I'll probably be on that list for three to five weeks, depending. He said, because they only take two people per day. I was like, okay. So I was there religiously every day. I didn't miss a minute, uh, and I was making some good connections. I was actually starting to feel a little better about myself. I didn't necessarily care for the halfway house, but I dealt with it. And one thing led to another, and boom. Next thing I know, I'm on not only on the list, but, you know, they I tell me on a Wednesday, they said, tomorrow you're going into K2. So you need to have all your 
stuff together. Pack all your bags. Uh, you know, place your stuff in storage if you can. If not, we do have a place here on the, the hospital grounds that we will, you know, secure your stuff while you're in this program. And needless to say, the fear factor jumped. Uh, the pucker factor really was tight. I mean, a, a, a gnat couldn't crawl to the crack on my behind at that point. But I, again, you know, I put one foot in front of the other, and I, I went in and checked in and went through all the pre-screening and all the things that I was supposed to do. And then I got a, a room assignment and two other roommates, and it's like, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> From dawn to dusk, you're in meetings, group therapies, art therapies, this therapy, that therapy. Everybody got a therapy, hee-haw, hee-haw, hee-haw. And I remember the second week, they were doing these memory training things, you know, go around the room, everybody introduces themselves, and one one or two lines about something in their life, and you're supposed to memorize as much of that as you possibly can. And what that was trying to do is to build up your short-term memory skills. And You know, I was 50-50 on that, so to speak. But the class after that was art therapy. And we'd sit in these art rooms, and you could make these little knickknacks and, you know, what have you, and... One day, this day, you know, they give us this big sheet of poster-type paper and say, okay, here's a couple of felt pens. Everybody draw something on that paper. Well, I can't even draw stick figures to this day uh, and make it look like a man or a woman. And uh, I just sat there. And I remember this guy, Pete Brown, he says, uh, Mike, you, you need to draw something on that paper. Well, I got very defensive. You know, when a fear factor jumps up for me, I throw my chest out and it's like, you know, I throw that aggression in there. And that used to work, you know, when I was out there drinking. Uh, you know, get people out of your face, leave you alone. Well, he's seen that game too many times. And he says, no, Mike, seriously, you need to draw something on that paper. Because when we're done with everybody, and I think there were 17 guys in my group, when we're done, we're going to go around the room, and everybody in the room is going to analyze what you wrote on that paper and tell you about yourself and what you have drawn. And again, I got very defensive, you know, because I was scared. I didn't know how to draw. And I said, I ain't drawing nothing on this paper, and you can't make me. Well, he leans over very calmly and says, if you don't draw something on that paper, we will discharge you out of this program, and it'll be one year before you can get back in. You need to draw something on there. And I boldly jumped up and I said, you know what? I don't need this stinking program. You guys suck. This sucks. Everybody sucks. I'm not drawing nothing on that paper. I'm telling you, I've got so much serenity in my life right now that I know five years from now I'm still going to be sober. And nothing you guys can do is going to change that. <laughs> oh, yeah, did I think I knew it all. Well, he boldly pulls me to the side and he goes, okay, look, you need to calm down. You literally are on the verge of getting kicked out of here. Why don't you want to draw on that paper? And I told him, because I don't know how to draw. I'm scared shitless, and I don't know how to draw. He said, just put something on the paper. I said, okay, fine. So I sat back down, and I put a gigantic question mark and a big circle for a dot, and I turned it in. i never seen 17 guys analyze somebody so well just off that one question mark. And I still remember, you know, saying, you know, that I, I know for a fact five years from now I'm going to be sober. And with all the strength and everything, and I'll, I'll skip on to, you know, all the things that led up uh, from after being discharged, which I did complete the program. I went to a, 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 a substance, I mean, a substance abuse foundation was the name of the place. It was sobri uh, Sober Living, Sobriety House. And eventually I worked myself up to being a manager, paid staff member, and stayed there for two years. But I remember when I finally got my five years, I went to a couple of the, the local meetings that we had gone off-site from the hospital, and I went in there with my five-year, you know, expectations and everything, and, you know, that 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 amorous feeling of saying, yeah, I'm going to go in there and show these people, you know, by God, I did do it. And I went to the meeting with all the vinegar and other substances that I had, thinking, you know, I'm going to show these people. But as I sat down and we went to the serenity prayer and the meeting readings and everything, I thought, you know, this is this is BS. You know, I I need to calm down. This is not about me, 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 me. This is about us, us, us. So when it came time for announcements for the birthdays and everything, and I stood up and I walked up to the front of the room, thinking, yeah, man, you know, this is feeling real good. You know, not not going up there with 
you know, the feeling of, look at how good I am, but looking at how proud I am, you know. I did it. I did do five years. And then, you know, they went to six, seven, eight. They went up the line, and you get to 15, and who should stand up but the counselor therapist that was in my art class? And I'm like, wow. I never once considered the fact that he was even in the program. I just thought he was a therapist. He picked up 15 years, and he goes, it feels good, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it sure does. And my life has gone on since then. You know, I got back into the, the stand-down thing that I was doing. I gave back every year. Uh, after the first year that I was there, I came back the second year as a volunteer. Uh, third year, I came back as a volunteer and moved my, myself up to a different position in, as far as volunteering areas. On the fourth year, they came up to me and asked me, or excuse me, the third year, they came up and asked me to be on the, the staff, on the executive committee. You know, he says, you are one of the things that we do this program for. You've got your life together. You know, you've got a job. You know, you're, you're participating. You're giving back. You know, you do event venues. You do alcoholic and anonymous venues. You know, you really are the epitome of what, you know, what we're trying to do here. And I was like, cool. So they put me on the executive staff, gave me a couple of, you know, other people underneath me. And we I ran my own, you know, my own little committee and everything. And. For 11 years, I did that. And every year, I would do exactly what the same guy did to me at that candlelight meeting. I would continue to give it away. And I found out way before this time that the reason the program works so well for me is because it's a message of the heart to the heart. You know, I didn't want some PhD sitting at the VA hospital who had, you know, gone to 10, 12, 14 years of schooling and book learning to tell me what it's like to be an alcoholic if the guy never abused drugs or alcohol. You know, that book doesn't teach you everything you need to know. You know, like the Indians say, if you haven't walked a mile in my moccasins, don't tell me how they fit. And this is what works so well in this program for me is, like I said, it's, it's from the heart to the heart. And... Uh, I'm sorry, somebody sent a message to me. Uh, and I continue to this day to give it back. You know, I've since remarried. Oh, let me back up a little bit. On my second wife, well, let me get into my, my third wife, my present wife and last wife, uh, yeah, because her and I have these, this connection. We, we literally can read each other like a book. We, we have ESP, so to speak, together. I'm getting ready to call her. She calls me. Uh, we have such a beautiful connection. You know, we have such a beautiful life. She's never seen me drink, uh, and God willing, creeks don't rise. She never will. But um, one day last year, uh, to help try to supplement some of my income, I was checking into these home-type businesses on the computer. 98% uh, uh, of those are scams, and thank God I never got scammed on it. But I had registered with a couple of them. And this one day... There's a message on my home home phone, which was not unusual. And it was, you know, a message from a girl named Megan. She says, this is, if this is the number for Mike Campbell, I'm trying to reach Mike Campbell, and uh, I need to ask him some more questions, or ask him some questions. And uh, if not, you know, either way, could somebody please give me a call and let me know this is the right or the wrong number. I'm going on the, the train of thought that this was somebody from one of these surveys or these things online that I was registered with needing more information. So I call back. I reach her answer machine or voicemail and you know say, hey, this is Mike Campbell, blah, blah, blah. Well, about an hour later, my phone rings again, and I pick it up. I go, hello. She goes, hi, is this Mike Campbell? I go, yes, it is. She goes, yeah, my name is Megan. I go, hi, Megan. I said, I left you a message. She goes, yeah, I got your message. Thanks for returning my call. And we get to conversing and everything else. And then finally she gets into some personal questions, and she asked it. You know, she said, hey, can I ask you a couple of personal questions? And I thought it was kind of like a, like a little background check, you know, kind of you know, get a little bit more information about me. And she gets to one point, she says, uh, do you have any children? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I had three children. I said, I had a 20-year-old son that got killed at work a couple of years back, and I said, I had to bury him. I've got a daughter, you know, that lives, still lives in Louisiana. She goes, do you have any other children? I said, well, I did have another daughter. I said, but when she was five months old, her mother decided she didn't want to be married anymore and took her and fell off the face of the earth. She goes, was her name Megan? 
And all of a sudden, my analytical mind's going about a thousand miles an hour. And I went, Megan, this girl's name is Megan. And I went, is your middle name Ray? She goes, yeah. I go, is your birthday October 8th? Yeah. I go, are you my daughter? She goes, yeah, daddy, I am. Well, I'm crying, she's crying. I'm like, oh, my God. Here, once again, because I had been living my life to the fullest through this book, through God, through my higher power, being of service, being into action, and doing all the right things, God felt that it was the right time to reunite us. And I thought, wow, this is such a God shot. Well, my wife and I were getting ready to go to Cancun in October, and uh, this is the end of August. So I'm talking to my daughter, and I said, hey, you know, I'd really love to see you. I said, you know, money's a little short right now because, you know, my wife and I have been planning this vacation for, you know, about two years now. And I really don't have a lot of money right now. But, you know, if you want to come down for a couple of days, you know, maybe I can take you to Disneyland or we can just sit, you know, sit and reunite and, you know, rejoice and what have you. And we can do that. So I did. I brought her down here. And uh, she spent three days with me. But one of the things that she had told me, you know, on the phone, but I didn't want to listen to it, she said, well, i got some other news besides, you know, just reuniting with you, uh, besides dispelling all the rumors and lies that her mother had told her. Uh, she said, I have some other news to tell you. And I thought, oh, you know, her mom's died or something. And that's what I said. I said, your mom died? She goes, no. She said, but I want to let you know you're a grandpa, too. I was like, What? So I bring him down here. She presents me with an almost one-year-old da- uh, granddaughter. So not only did I get to reunite with my 18-year-old daughter, who turned 19 a couple of weeks later, but I also got to meet my granddaughter. And I thought, wow, this is such a wonderful thing. And to this day, you know, we, we email each other. We text each other. She uh, She's very good at texting. It takes me a long time to figure all that out. But we talk on the phone. We send pictures back and forth. And we're fully involved in each other's lives. And not one second of that would have been available to me had 18 years ago that cop shot me when they should have. Or that I didn't get into this program and turn my life around. Or that I, I, I didn't do this, this, this. And when I say that, in truth, what I am saying is God and I. Because I do absolutely nothing in my life, absolutely nothing by myself anymore. My higher power is involved in everything I do, and my wife is involved in everything I do. I try to take self and me out of the situation and take input from those two resources that I have that help me stay on an even keel. Because without either one of these, I won't have the other. And without God in my life, I won't have sobriety. Without sobriety, I won't have a daughter, a granddaughter, a beautiful wife, lifestyle, two dogs that love me as if I'm you know, the only thing on this earth, and a family that respects me. You know, that's one of the things my, my dad or my stepdad, even like I call him my dad, I very rarely call him my stepdad, but in, in actuality he is. Uh, and that's not to say, you know, take away from the importance of the things that he has done in my life, but he's a, he's a different type of a person. He's an engineer, to say the least. Uh, that makes him different. But uh, he was never really that much of uh, an affectionist, you know, when we were growing up. You know, yeah, we had all the boys and toys and all the things, you know, that, that you know, a family does, you know, because my dad wasn't well, well-to-do, but he was fairly decently paid for the work that he was doing. And we, we never wanted for anything, you know, once, once my mom married him. Uh, but to this day, like I said, I call him my dad. But I remember one time uh, with this involvement that I do with... Uh, with the stand down and the homeless vets, they presented me an award for a guy that was also a committee chairman that uh, had our T-shirts printed up for the event every year. His name was Norm Morrill, like like the actor Vic Morrill, and uh, Norm died of cancer. You know, he had been struggling for a long time, and he eventually succumbed. And they wanted to do something special for his family and 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 for the stand down that he was totally involved in. And they came to me and asked me if I'd be willing to accept an award in his name, in behalf of his name, as a foundation that they were starting, and I was going to be the first recipient. And I thought, sure, well, that's kind of a cool thing. 
I never received too many awards in my life. It was always, you know, a kick in the pants and five dollars to go away. And, uh, you know, I knew it was going to be at the committee meeting, which was usually, you know, the kickoff meeting before our actual event of stand down. So on Thursday night, we do this kickoff meeting and then Friday we started the stand downs. And I didn't realize there were going to be as many people there as there was. Uh, because it was a special special anniversary that particular year and the mayor of the city was there and there was some congressmen and a couple of senators and you know some fairly whoop de doo type people. Not that that means anything to me, but you know, obviously some of the other people there, you know, it, it does because of the community involvement. So it comes time for the presentation and I went up there and for days you know, I didn't know what I wanted to say because they asked me if I'd, I'd give a little bit of a speech. Well, I'd been in AA long enough to, to know how to get up in front of a room of strangers and, and, and say a few words. But I didn't know what I wanted to say at this meeting. And the day before, I'm riding around on my motorcycle, and I drove by this big evangelistic church one day. And on the marquee, it said exactly what I said at this acceptance, among other things. But it said... Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I thought that was so apropos because it not only explains our stand-down situation, explains my AA situation, explains my life. You know, if you don't care, what do you have? You know, that's what this program has taught me, to care for others, to take self out of the equation, and to give to others. Give away what has been freely given to me. If it wasn't for the first 164 pages of this big book, the fellowship of this program, a higher power, and the ability to say and share my worst aspects of my life and my worst shortcomings and my worst character defects, I wouldn't have a life. See, this program has taught me to be human. It's taught me how to live life. on life's terms. It's taught me to be the person that I truly coulda, shoulda, woulda been. blame anybody today for any of those things except myself. See, because among other things that I've learned in this program, I've always had freedom of choice. My problem is I've always chosen the wrong things. You know, Now I have people in this program, when I don't go to a meeting, they call me. My wife works across the street from a church that where we we met at because I was actually doing reconstruction on that church and uh, dating blah blah blah. But that church, there's two meetings that I go to every week, Mondays and Wednesdays. I chair the one on Monday and Wednesday I'm a participant. And they actually, I think, have four or five meetings per week there. But a lot of the, the regular people at the meetings come over to my wife's store. Hey, you know, God, you know, we love listening to your husband. And, you know, where is he this week? You know, he didn't show up Wednesday night. How come? You know, oh, he was sick, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, they give her hugs and kisses and everything else. And she says, wow. She says, I don't know a lot about your program. But she says, you people really love each other. I said, Yes. See, that's another one of the gifts that this program has given us and has given me is the ability to love and to give love. You know, I love being sober. I love having money in my pocket to do things that I want to do. You know, I love not looking over my shoulder every time a black and white pulls a U-turn or pulls up behind me. You know, now I kind of like stick my chest up and say, go ahead, pull me over on a Sprite check. I want I want somebody to give me a blow test, you know. Well, that didn't sound too good. Uh, but give me one of those <laughs> breath analyzers. Uh, and to this day, I have yet to be able to get through one of those. Uh, it's like they're always never where I want to be, you know. Uh, I've actually turned into an area one time that I knew that they were doing it, and they were already taking it down. I thought, well, that sucks. But see... In actuality, I don't need that to justify my existence. You know, I don't have to have you know that given to me anymore because I don't. It's not about throwing my chest out and look at me. 
It's about putting my hand out and say, hey, that this program has given me, besides you know, all the other materialistic things like my daughter being back into my life and everything else. You know, The people I hang with now either know that I'm an alcoholic and don't drink or they're in the program with me and they know I don't drink. Uh, you know, this this is, goes on and on and on. How much time do I have, or have, have I exceeded my time? Uh, because I, I'm, I mean, I can go on and on and on, or I can cut it short and uh, and do. Marianne, Marianne, fifteen minutes left. In, okay, well, we've got time for readings too, so I'll, I'll cut cut down a little short. Uh, but one one of the things I want to kind of back, you know, I mentioned the, the death of my son. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, let me just quickly talk about my son, and then I'll I'll cut it short. Uh, you know, I I uh, was getting my life together. You know, I had just gotten off of one job and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And at this time, I'm actually back living with my sister and paying rent and paying half the utilities and you know I actually put money in her pocket instead of taking money out and I don't remember it was, it was real early in the morning you know like four o'clock or I over and grabbed it I thought nah I'm not grabbing that you know because whoever, whoever it is has got to be for my sister nobody calls me at that time in the morning yeah a couple minutes later my sister came into my room she says pick up the phone so I pick up my phone my phone and it was my daughter in Louisiana and she's crying and what have you and she says Michael Scott got killed yesterday and my life seemed to come to an end like right right there in that split second I had just gotten a job that I was supposed to start I think the next the very next day uh, I went through you know the screening process and you know the interviews and all of that and it was a fairly decent job and uh I was like, wow, you know, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to make arrangements, I got to do this, da 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 da. So one of the first things I did earlier or later that morning was, you know, call the company and say, look, you know, I just just lost a child, and you know, I need to know if there's any way you can put the job on hold for three days. You know, I got to go bury my son, blah blah blah. And they were very gracious about it, and they did. So I went, flew back with my mom and my sister to Louisiana, and. I was a little scared because, you know, I wasn't exactly the best, you know, absent father and, you know, what have you. Uh, and then to be there on those terms was obviously not a favorable thing either. But I uh, I went to the funeral home and, you know, for the viewing, and because of the way that he was killed, uh, they had to have a closed casket ceremony. And uh, I'm there and I'm crying and, you know, I'm going through all the emotional things and, you know, this and that, and I'm thinking, you know, this this really sucks, you know, because one of the things that I had done on my fourth and fifth was procrastinated making the amends to my son, you know, for the leaving, because he had given me, just like, and I don't mean to sound derogatory, but he's just like a, a dog, you know, he gave you that unconditional love no matter how you treated him. And I had never received a lot of love in my life. So I didn't know how to accept it and or to give it back. And uh, he did. He cherished me. And it, it just tore my heart out, you know. And it was easier for me to just stay away from that than to buy into the emotions and, you know, the strain that it would put me through. And, again, it was a selfish thing. Um you know, I'm standing there and I'm praying and I'm talking and, you know, and I'm hugging the casket and just everything else. And it's like, you know what? I went to the funeral director and I said, I can't do this. You know, I'm not going to bury a box with a picture of my son on the top of it. You know, I have the right and the need for closure to have that coffin opened up and say goodbye to my son, to the body of my son. And I said, I know how he was killed, and I know, you know, this and that, and I don't care. You know, I need to, I need to see him. And you know, they they said, okay, well, after the the main viewing, and everything else, we will, you know, grant that for you privately. And I said, okay, that's all I ask. Because, like I said, I couldn't say goodbye to a box. You know, I could, I just couldn't do that. Uh, and I'm glad I didn't. You know, I really am. They prepared the body quite well. Uh, which was very amazing to me because of the way that he was killed. Uh, and 
as soon as they opened up the box and you know I got got my nerve up and walked over to the to the casket he was my clone absolutely identical down to the mustache other than the fact I had more gray hair than he did but he was an identical twin and I was like oh my god you know you know and I, I said my goodbyes and you know, I was in there for quite a while, going through the emotional roller coaster, and not wanting him to close the casket, but yet wanting him to close it, and not wanting to go through more emotions, but wanting to go through more emotions, and it was just, it was just tearing me apart. So I finally, you know, came to the point where, you know, I had to poop or get off the pot, and I told him, okay, go ahead and close it. So the next day, which was the ceremonies, the services, I should say, not ceremonies, uh, I was talking to the preacher who knew me when I lived in Louisiana. And his name was Brother Ott. And I told him, I said, you know, I just have a lot of problems with this. I don't know, you know, what I could have done different. And, you know, I mean, I was going through trying to justify some of the things. And I said, you know, and I'm in the AA program. And, you know, I'm, I'm not like a saint or anything like that. But my life has turned around. And, you know, and this was the year that I was going to be making the amends to my son, you know, because his birthday was coming up in August. And he got killed in April. And, you know, how dare God take that opportunity away from me? And, you know, he stopped me right then and there. And he said, well, how dare you to procrastinate? And I was like, wait a minute, who are you? You know, pulled the rug right out from underneath me. But yet what he said was true. It was my fault for procrastinating. Why am I blaming God for something, you know? He said, let me tell you a little bit about your son. And he laid out, you know, some things about my son. And the last thing that has stuck with me to this day is that your son's life was in order. He was a member of the church. He was a... Uh, 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 not associate pastor, but an associate teacher, whatever they call it. He, you know, he ran one of the classes. Uh, you know, he was right with his girlfriend. He was right with God. And, you know, his life was in order. He says, so what God has done is asked your son to come up into his realm and prepare the road for those who are coming behind him. And it was like, whoa. You know, I lost it. I started crying. I was like, oh, my God, you know, out of the mouth of babes. You know, it was a message that I needed to hear because it gave all the importance to his life that I was trying to take away. You know, he was right. You know, he was a very, very astute young young man. And to this day, that stuck with me. You know, God took him because he's preparing the road for those who are coming behind him. And see, that's what I try to do now in AA. By sharing my experience, my strength, and my hope, I try my best to prepare the road for those that are coming behind me, because that's what the old-timers did for me, and that's what my job and my responsibility, as I see it, is for me, is to prepare that road for everybody behind me, and those sometimes in front of me, you know, because I'll share this and I'll finally shut up. I'm a firm believer in this adage that I heard many, many years ago. Do not walk behind me, because I will not lead. And do not walk in front of me, because I refuse to follow. But walk alongside me, hand in hand, and I will be your best friend. And I live by that adage. And I think that this is one of the greatest programs that has ever come into my life, that has ever been a part of my life, that ever has run my life. Because, see, I allow this program to be part of me and this program allows me to be part of it my name is Mike and I appreciate you guys asking me to share uh, Marianne it's been a pleasure and uh, I hope that everybody in this room and outside of these rooms uh, can take something you know from this program you know whether it be part of my sharing or anything else uh, like I said this program works a thousand percent of the time it's we that fail the program not the program that fails us and I truly am grateful for, for the ability and the opportunity to share my experience, strength, and hope. And God bless all of you. Again, my name is Mike, and thank you.